Uh, eschatology is what we want to understand. Eschatology is a subdivision of, of systematic theology, uh, the focus of which is last things. Um, on our website, I think if you go to December 2010, we had a night and we had an evening of eschatology where uh, the church body was given a number of weeks to write down questions, and then we addressed those questions over an hour and a half. You know, like, uh, is Satan bound? Yeah, the answer is yes. The question is, what is he bound from? Uh, all influence? No. He's bound from deceiving the nations. Thing, things of uh, that nature, questions like that. Uh, but here, eschatology simply means um, last things. And among Christians, as you probably are well aware of, there's probably more disagreement here in eschatology, things regarding eschatology, than there are um, all doctrines combined, really, unless you're a heretic, of course. Um, But what I want to look at first this morning is the four uh, major approaches of interpreting interpreting the Revelation. Um, These are summarized nicely, by the way, uh, by G.K. Beale. Um, in his wonderful, masterful work on the book of Revelation. I highly recommend it, but I will warn you it is uh, rather scholarly and technical. But if you want a great work on the book of Revelation, G.K. Beale. Okay, so first view, get right into this. The first view, uh, which is actually gaining acceptance among Reformed Christians, is what's known as preterism. Preteris simply means uh, that which has gone past Again, we're going to look at the four views um, as far as interpretation goes uh, before we move any further this morning. Uh, preterism teaches that everything recorded within the Revelation was fulfilled um, in the first century with the exception of the second coming of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. New heaven and new earth, of course. Um, believing that Revelation was written before the destruction of Jerusalem um, in 70 A.D., which would mean everything in the Revelation was indeed fulfilled when the armies of Rome sacked Jerusalem, raised the temple to the ground, scattering surviving Jews um, throughout the Mediterranean Mediterranean world, and as Josephus records, a million and a half slaughtered at that time. So that view treats Revelation as though it's mainly um, historical, most everything written, again, um, with the exception of the second coming of Christ, resurrection, new heaven, new earth, was fulfilled before in 70 A.D. Um, there are, we would refer to this as partial preterism, and I'll explain why in just a moment. Um, those, some familiar names that adhere to that view um, are uh, R.C. Sproul is a preterist, partial preterist. Um, Ken Gentry, who actually wrote a book entitled Before Jerusalem Fell. If you're a reader, I'd recommend that book to get an understanding of where they're coming from. So preterism condenses Revelation to a merely historical record. And some opponents of this view believe believe that preterism strips Revelation of its apocalyptic nature... I disagree with that. I, I think that it just limits it to first century Christians. So, Now, there is a, a heretical arm of preterism. Very important. Because we had some of those here. We had two hyper-preterists 
that were here, 2009, 2010. Hyperpreterism believes everything in the Revelation was fulfilled in 70 AD, including the second coming, including the resurrection, including Satan and his demons being cast into the lake of fire. Now, how they parse that and how they break that down is rather complicated. I know where they're coming from, and you don't even, I, I wouldn't even recommend you spend your time looking at that. But that is a heretical arm. We call it hyperpreterism. So when you hear someone like R.C. Sproul refer to themselves as a preterist, don't put them in this camp. Okay? Partial preterism is certainly within the pale of orthodoxy. It's, very, it's, it's a view that, that is accepted, but um, we, we don't teach it here. Second view is one that's been uh, widely held by historic Protestants, known as historicism. Um, the historicist approach pr- presents a basic outline of development um, of the church from the day of Pentecost to the consummation of the kingdom um, and the new heaven and the new earth. So while preterists say it's done, it's all taken place with the exception of the Lord's second coming. Um, historicists, they see uh, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ as a kind of historical map of Christ's church, which would cause the reader to, to ask, you know, where are we in the revelation? Where are we today? What chapter are we in at present as we move towards the culmination of all things? Now, proponents of this view of historicism um, identify, for instance, the, heart, the harlot of Babylon in Revelation 18. Uh, they, they associate that with the Catholic Church and the papacy. Um, they see the Pope as the Antichrist, and that was actually written into the Protestant creeds, such as the Westminster Confession of 1646, that uh, the Pope is the Antichrist. And although the papacy, I agree, likely serves as part of the opposition of the true gospel, true gospel proclamation, um, the historicist view doesn't mesh well uh, with the nature, once again, of apocalyptic literature, which is really a key in understanding um, this book, which, as I said last time, depicts for us um, not specific events, but, but general patterns or reoccurring conflict throughout time between the first and second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ, that conflict between Christ um, and Satan, which culminates in eschatological conquest, final ultimate victory in a new heaven and a new earth. Now, that leads us to the third view known as idealism. Idealism. Um, This is the spiritual or symbolic view. It's also referred to as recapitulationism. Some people refer to it as that. Um, That's the view that we teach here. That's the view that I presented um, throughout the first uh, 15 chapters of the Revelation. We taught 2009, 2010, or 10 and 11, one or the other. Now, this view does emphasize the apocalyptic nature of the book. And it understands the various visions throughout the book is portraying that particular struggle. That struggle between the first and second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. The entire period of time there. 
So each vision is describing the same period of time from different perspectives. When we read through the Revelation, you're seeing seven scenes from seven different perspectives regarding that same scenario, which reminds us um, that, that we mustn't view Revelation as depicting strictly future or historical events. Nor does you know, Revelation comprehensively map out in chronological order the history of the church. That will strip, I believe, Revelation of its apocalyptic nature. Are you with me? (laughs) So as we read the Revelation, as we look at the Revelation, uh, we must see the visions and the symbols within those visions. Remember, John says numerous times, then I saw this, then I saw that. The chronology isn't within the visions he was given, not particularly events in, in a particular order. And it just depicts the ongoing struggle between the Lord his church, and Satan, and his minions, the beast and the dragon, a struggle that will ultimately be destroyed. He's already defeated. He's a defeated foe. He's a defeated enemy. And and his final sentencing, if you will, will come about at the second coming when he's cast into the lake of fire. Okay, that leads us to a fourth view, the one that most of you um, are familiar with. Um, And that is the futurist view. Most of you were probably taught that. Unless you came up in reform circles, you were taught the futurist view, almost certainly. Um, That is that most of what is written in the Revelation remains yet to be fulfilled in in the days immediately before um, the Lord's return. Now, as you know, many teachers and many authors that hold to this particular view spend a great deal of time um, and energy trying to tie the symbols of the book of Revelation to current events. And you also know that there are those who repeatedly, year in and year out, attempt to either pin the tail on the Antichrist or set a date or times specifically to the Lord's second coming. All kinds of books throughout time. In 1988, 88 reasons why the Lord will return in 1988, things like that. Okay, so those... There's four main approaches to interpreting the Revelation. Now, the main reason, okay, the main reason there's so much disagreement over last things is chiefly because of the understanding of the time and nature of the millennium. Okay, and millennium, millennial views are drawn from one chapter in the Bible, Revelation 20. There are three views of the millennium or the thousand years. There is amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism. Okay, I just want to say at the outset, all three views agree that Christ will return. All three views agree that there'll be a final judgment, and they all agree that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. So if you have friends that adhere to some other view, They're still our brothers and sisters, amen? Okay, so let me begin with amillennialism, okay? We teach the amillennial view here, um, and that is that the millennium is essentially spiritual, that when Christ came, he inaugurated his kingdom. When he comes back, he'll 
consummate that kingdom. And it doesn't mean a literal 1,000 years. It, it, it is a number that represents a long period of time. So in all actuality, amillennialism is really post-millennial in that Christ returns after that 1,000 years or after that long duration of time. Now, amillennial is uh, unfortunately something that we've been tagged with. And the name is rather misleading because it means no millennium. Ah means no or without. So that's why we would refer to it as an inaugurated kingdom. Inaugurated when Christ came, and once again will be fully consummated when he returns. So the millennium is just a long period of time between the first and second advents of Christ. So when we speak of an inaugurated kingdom or an inaugurated eschatology, what we're saying is that very significant eschatological events commenced at his first coming. And they did. Oh yeah, just read the New Testament. While other eschatological occurrences still remain to be fulfilled in the future. So we believe, we teach that the Bible clearly teaches that the kingdom of God is present in one sense and future in another. We're subjects of that kingdom now. So we live in a kind of tension between what's referred to as the already and the not yet. The already established, not yet fully consummated kingdom. John talks about a tension in chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother, am a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. So we're already in the kingdom, and yet we look forward to the full manifestation of this kingdom. It's the gospel age, beloved. The apostles were given the keys of the kingdom, amen? The gospel unlocks the darkness of men's hearts, enabling them to believe from throughout all nations. That's that's amillennialism. Next, postmillennialism teaches and agrees with all millennialism that the millennium is not a literal thousand years where Christ will literally physically reign in Jerusalem, but is a spiritual uh, millennium. Now, a distinctive mark of post-millennialism is that prior to Christ's return, they teach that the gospel will progress and the gospel will triumph more and more, where the world will be largely Christianized, and then Christ returns. So whatever that time is of a Christianized period of time, they refer to that as the millennium. So post means after. That is, Christ returns after the millennium. Amen? You with me? I know there's a lot of information. Now, the millennial view most of you are familiar with um, is premillennialism, where Christ physically returns to set up his kingdom here on earth, lasting 1,000 literal years, and then final judgment will come. There are two major forms um, of premillennialism. One is historic. The other is dispensational. Most of you would be familiar with dispensational premillennialism. Both versions teach that Christ's return will be preceded by a seven-year tribulation. Um, But not all historic premillennialists believe that it's a literal seven years. Okay? 
I haven't confused you already. Now, the clearest distinction between historic and dispensational premillennialism concerns their different views of Israel and its relationship to the church. Okay? Historic premillennialists see the church as spiritual Israel. Dispensational premillennialists see Israel and the church as distinct entities such that God has one plan for national ethnic Israel and another plan for the church. So before we get into that, in summary, premillennialism teaches that Christ returns before and then sets up a literal, physical, political kingdom. Postmillennialism teaches that Christ returns after a Christianized millennial period. And amillennialism, which we teach here, teaches that Christ has already established his kingdom at his first advent and will consummate it at his second. Okay? Now, it is thought and it is taught that if you get your hermeneutics right... Hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation, how you interpret the entire Bible. It is thought and taught, if you get your hermeneutics right, you'll get your eschatology right. Last things. And that's precisely where we part ways with our dispensational, premillennial friends in particular. Not separate as far as fellowship goes. We're brothers and sisters, but we separate with regard to our view hermeneutically of the Bible. They hold dispensational premillennialists in what most of you were probably taught. They hold to the presupposition that national ethnic Israel is at the center of all biblical eschatology and covenants. So the Old Testament promises made to national Israel are the hermeneutical key to Scripture. Whereas we assign the center of all biblical eschatology to Jesus, who the New Testament says is the true Israel of God, therefore we see Jesus as the hermeneutical key to Scripture. So understanding the difference between the amillennial hermeneutic and the dispensational hermeneutic is the key to understanding the heart of the debate. Okay, and they're not our enemies, amen? And we ought not to be theirs. There's a lot of bantering that goes back and forth. I hear it on the radio. If you're an amillennialist, gee, oh my goodness, I hear on Calvary Radio, my goodness, you're near to heresy there. But every major dispensational theologian insists that God has two distinct redemptive programs. Again, one for ethnic national Israel, one for the Gentiles. And let me quote for you the most popular dispensational premillennialist of our day, who's one of my heroes, by the way, John MacArthur. Don't badmouth John MacArthur here, ever. Ever. I love the man. But here's what he says, quote, That which uniquely distinguishes dispensationalism is that we see a distinction in Scripture between Israel and the church. There are only two people elections in Scripture, 
Israel, an an eschatological group of ethnic Israelites that will constitute the future nation who will receive the promises of God and the church. There's no reason in the Bible to mingle the two, end quote. I say, yes, there is. Revelation portrays the church as the new Israel, symbolically described as 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. And those who belong to the 12 tribes of Israel in chapter 21, verse 12 of Revelation, confess the message proclaimed by the 12 apostles in chapter 21, verse 14. So, and, and by the way, by way of contrast... Unbelieving ethnic Jews are referred to in Revelation 2 and 3 as a synagogue of Satan. So we see scripture telling us that God's purpose is not to save two distinct people derived by ethnicity, but to save his people, God's people, his elect, a multitude which no one can number, Revelation 7, 9, from out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, dispensationalism also stresses that all prophecy is to be fulfilled in the literal sense. But the question is, do we only understand Scripture correctly when we read prophecy in a literal sense? The answer is no. Let me quote Ian Murray. Quote, Scripture shows us that when it comes to the promises of God, the children of Abraham are not the literal physical Jews, for they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham, Galatians 3.7. Similarly, the Jews of the first century were wrong to anticipate that a literal Elijah was promised in Malachi 4, for it was John the Baptist who fulfilled that promise in Matthew 11. Christians are warranted, Murray goes on to say, to understand that what Jerusalem stands for now is heaven. And the tabernacle of David, which God promised to rebuild, is applied by the Holy Spirit to the bringing of the Gentile Christians in Acts 15, 16. So a literal sense may therefore be the wrong sense, end quote. Now, with regard to literal, literalistic interpretations, My personal dispensational friends, and I have a number of them, they always say it's all about the land promise. So I'll take them to uh, Joshua 21, verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. They took possessions of it and they settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Joshua 23, verse 14. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Verse 16, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow before them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. Speaking of covenants, 
Hebrews 8. Is it 13? In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What's becoming obsolete and growing old is already, is ready rather to vanish away. See, point is, here's the point. Once Christ comes and we read the New Testament, the apostolic writings reveal for us that the typological promise of land in particular leads to an expected universalized land promised in light of Christ's coming. It was much bigger than a sliver of land in Palestine. Why do we know this? Because Hebrews tells us. We'll look at that in a minute. So the true glories or the true full manifestation of what God promised cannot be fully seen or understood until Christ comes. But even so, Christ being that hermeneutical key, right? Even so, the New Testament tells us, looking back, that even Abraham got it. He got it. Although he was promised a land, and what we know is Palestine in, in Genesis 12, by faith, he realizes something much greater for the people of God, be they Jew or Gentile. And that something greater was not found in any earthly promise, including land. Hebrews 11, 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. When he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Teaching us that the promise of land given to Israel is typological of something much, much, much greater. This is how we teach this. It's a heavenly kingdom that was inconceivable in the days of the patriarchs and in the days of Moses. In other words, the New Testament explains what those things promised in the Old Testament truly, fully meant. That's how we see the scripture. So the point is, we could never rightly understand the promises here in their fullness if we regard the original promise in Genesis 12 as the hermeneutical key to determine how we understand last things. Then naturally you have to think that there's two purposes, one for ethnic national Israel and a future political kingdom, and that's what it will be, a future political kingdom and the church. So dispensationalists see it in the reverse. They say the Old Testament tells us what the promise is, and it is a particular physical piece of land. We disagree. So it must be taken literally, they say, or else we undermine the authority of Scripture. And that's John MacArthur's argument, whom I love. (laughs) So we say the New Testament clarifies and amplifies the Old Testament prophecies in light of Christ. Now, 
my dispensational premillennial friends will accuse me of spiritualizing the text, but actually it's Paul who spiritualizes the text with regard to the land promise. And he extends that promise to the whole world after the coming of Christ. For instance, in Romans 4.13, for the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the what? World. Did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Be they Jew or Gentile who believe by faith makes up the true Israel of God. So Hebrews tells us that the promise of a land in Palestine was typological of the heavenly city which Abraham desired. This is what he was looking to because he saw that the land pointed him to something much, 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 what? Greater. So promise gives way to fulfillment. Types and shadows of the Old Testament give way to biblical clarity. And now that Christ has come, redemptive history unfolds in a much grander, greater way. This is what we teach. 1 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God. What promises? All the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Now, dispensational brothers also believe that revelation is laid out in chronological order. Okay? Now, we teach, again, recapitulation. We see that revelation provides seven scenes, once again, covering the same period of time from different vantage points. It's like seeing the same football play from seven different camera angles. Not chronological. I want you to look at this exercise. Okay, there's two scenes. This serves as an example. One comes from Revelation 12, and one comes from Revelation 20, and I want you to notice the similarity. Revelation 12, verses 7 through 11, and Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. In chapter 12, verse 7, we have a heavenly scene. Chapter 20, verse 1, heavenly scene. Chapter 12, verse 8, a victorious angelic battle. Chapter 20, verse 2, a victorious angelic battle. Chapter 12, verse 9, Satan's cast what? Down to the earth. Chapter 20, verse 3, Satan is cast down into the abyss. Chapter 12, verse 9, Satan's called the dragon. Chapter 20, verse 2, Satan's called the dragon. Chapter 12, verse 10, Christ's kingdom, notice, comes as a result of Satan's fall. Chapter 20, verse 4, after Satan's fall, the saints reign with Christ in the kingdom age for a thousand years. Chapter 12, verse 12, the, the devil comes with great wrath, knowing his time is short. Chapter 20, Verse 3, after being restrained from deceiving the nations any longer, a thousand years are ended, he's released for a little while. So there you have two scenes depicting the same events, not identically, but parallel scenes of the same time. That is, different snapshots of the same events, eight chapters apart. Are you with me? Eight chapters apart. Not in chronological order. Now, 
Okay, if, if chapter 20 is supposed to follow chronologically after chapter 12 with seven chapters of events in between, also in chronological order, that interpretation creates a lot of problems. Okay, now, let's say, let's just say, let's give the benefit of the doubt to my dispensational brothers. Let's say chapter 20 follows chronologically after chapter 19 from a premillennial standpoint. In chapter 19, we see that Christ returns. Right? You see the marriage supper of the Lamb. He establishes his kingdom in chapter 20. Satan is bound. Okay, now, question is, are we to believe that Christ comes back establishes a literal physical kingdom, Jesus rules over the nations, and then at the end of those thousand years, there's a revolt against his rule, which would be a second fall, by the way. A second fall. And, you know, another problem with this view is, is how people get into this age in natural bodies. Because apparently there's some glorified, some not, some boring, born during this literal thousand years. And then naturally, if you're, they're born naturally, and then, then that's followed by a second fall from the glorified presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another question. How is Satan able to deceive the nations in chapter 20, verse 8, if this is chronological? Because Jesus, in chapter 19, already struck down the nations in his wrath, in the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, he strikes down the nations. So, in Revelation 19, from a dispensational premillennial view, Jesus comes back, judges the nations. In chapter 20, Satan's bound from the deceiving the nations, So the question is, what nations is he deceiving if they were destroyed in chapter 19? Well, some will say, well, it's nations that are born over time over those thousand years, so they're new nations. Okay, question. In 1917, chapter 19, verse 17, we see the imagery of birds there. Grotesque picture, notice this. Eating the flesh of God's enemies in judgment. That's imagery taken from Ezekiel 38 and 39, okay, where we read of Gog and Magog, who represent the final enemies of God. Okay? So their flesh is being eaten by birds, symbolic, as we believers are eating also at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Quite a contrast, amen? Between wrath and rest between the people of God and the enemies of God. So if that is the imagery, and this is chronological, Gog and Magog appear again in chapter 20, verses 8 and 9. Okay, the imagery of chapter 19 takes us back to Ezekiel 38 and 39. In chapter 20 of Revelation... Gog and Magog are consumed by fire, which is also imagery taken from Ezekiel 39, verses 4 through 6. All that to say, 
we view chapter 19 and chapter 20 as complementary visions of the same last battle. The same last battle. So reading this chronologically, as my, some of my friends do, creates all kinds of problems. Recapitulation shows us the same events of the same time from seven different vantage points. See, eschatology is very important. Some want to ignore it. And they claim that they're pan-millennialists, meaning it'll all pan out in the end. That won't do. Because eschatology, beloved, determines how you interpret the Bible as a whole. And if I want to promise, follow the promise of, of the seed of Genesis 3 and the crushing of the head of the serpent, if I want to follow that throughout redemptive history, it makes much more sense to stand with, I believe, the particular view in which we teach here. In eschatology, it, all, it also determines how you're going to live your life and how you view both the present and the future. You know, I have friends that, that live in paranoia as Christians. Everything that happens on the news, they're just paranoid. And they're always talking about the Antichrist, not always, many of them, talk about the Antichrist who's the, instead of Christ, the victor. The ruling, reigning king. Jesus said, all power and authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all what? Nations. He rules over the nations. Now and forevermore. Now, wow, now we're out of time, but I guess I'll get into this next week. Um, with regard to the second coming. Now, the reason I'm talking so much about premillennial dispensationalism is because that's what most of you are taught. And people who came to this church in 2009, and I was teaching from an amillennial uh, view and a recapitulation view, just went sideways. They had never heard anything else before in their lives but dispensational premillennialism. And many of them, what they learned from like the Left Behind series, fictional series. And many of them did have like, God bless him, John MacArthur's study Bible. So they're listening to me. They're reading John MacArthur's footnotes and they're going, who is this guy pointing to me? Who could disagree with John MacArthur? It's that, that was the type, of, the type of attitude. Okay, So the reason is I want to lay out these things for your understanding. Um, with regard to premillennial dispensational, the school of interpretation with regard to the second coming concerns not only the timing of Christ's coming with regard to the millennium, but also the mode of his coming. See, they teach that there's a difference between the coming of the Lord and the appearing of the Lord. That is, when he comes, he's only coming for his church. And he's going to whisk them away secretly. Secret rapture, right? Okay, we want to ask next week, where did the secret rapture come from? Do we see this secret rapture in Scripture? 
and they believe, as you're taken away, there'll be Jews in the land of Israel, they'll rebuild a temple, sacrifices will be offered, and Antichrist will appear. There'll be three and a half years of uh, temporal apparent peace, and then that's followed by three and a half years of what's known as Great Tribulation, um, where all hell just breaks loose. So that leads to the question, is there a premillennial or tribulational rapture of believers from the earth? And that is referring to a secret rapture. You know, if Christ came back right now, would you be raptured? Caught up? That means to be caught up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And transformed in the twinkling of an eye. But I don't think there's anything secret about it. No, when I read scripture, there is nothing. It's loud. It is obvious. So, next week, we'll start out, I want to look at 1 Thessalonians 4, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 15, I want to look at, look at some proof texts that my friends hold to with regard to a secret rapture, two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left, and so on. Yeah, he, he, the question was, if you're accused of being, believing replacement theology, which I have been accused of, you say, not at all. I don't at all believe that the church replaces ethnic Israel. But use this analogy. The church doesn't replace Israel. We are the fulfillment of true Israel. Okay, so what the, what, what the butterfly is to the caterpillar the church is to true Old Testament Israel. The full manifestation of God's glorious work of redemption. For there is no Jew, there is no Gentile. We're one in Christ. The mystery of the Old Testament has been revealed in the new. The middle wall of separation has been broken down as God has made two men what? One in Christ. So let me close with a quote from Dennis Johnson in his book, Triumph of the Lamb. Quote, another book I highly recommend, by the way. Triumph of the Lamb, Dennis Johnson. Quote, you are living between two worlds, believer. The first heaven and earth, which are destined for destruction, and the new creation to which you already belong as God's holy city. The bride now being beautified for her husband. Jesus' revelation to the churches through John is given to help you navigate the paradoxes built into the betweenness of your situation. In the truest and deepest perspective, you are safe and secure, protected by the Lord God Almighty and defended by the Lamb who's overcome. You are the sealed people of God, marked with His name. Whatever may occur between today and the great day of the wrath of God and the Lamb, you know that on that last day you will be able to stand without terror and with expectant joy. You are the measured sanctuary of God. Remember that? Measurement of the temple. You are the temple, jealously guarded by His Spirit from any defilement that would lead to His withdrawal from your midst. You are the two invincible witnesses of God. 
His enemies cannot silence you until you have completed your mission and delivered the testimony that he has entrusted to you in your generation. Even when death seems to have gained the upper hand and you lie in the dust or in the city street, its victory will be short-lived. And quoted, amen. And the reason I'm not a writer is because I can't write like that. <laughs> 